for the for the last uh, the last month, for the last several weeks, last few weeks, we've been talking about the church is a beacon. The kingdom of God is to be a beacon in this world. And we started off by talking that the church is a beacon of love. And we said the church is a beacon of truth. On Wednesday nights, we've been talking about the church as, as a beacon of power. These are the three dimensions of the kingdom of God. The, king, the, the gospel, when it goes forward, there are three dimensions to it. It needs to go forward in love. We need to have deeds that demonstrate the love of the living God. It needs to go forth in power. There are signs that follow those who believe, and it needs to go forth in truth. The word of the gospel implanted into the heart of man brings life where there's death, light where there's darkness. These are the three dimensions of the gospel message. But there are three core values that bring those dimensions to life. There are three core values that make those, that, that, that make them the, the mission effective in this world. And those three core values are this, love, faith, and hope. Love, faith, and hope. How many of us know that these are the three things that last, Paul says? The three things that last. On these three things, they are the central core virtues of the kingdom of God. They are the evidence of salvation in our lives. They are the evidence that the church is effective, that we are having effect in the world around us. Are we bringing love, faith, and hope? Well, this message here to Ezekiel uh, that Ezekiel gives, this is a message that is prophesied over Israel, and, and Israel is about to go into exile. In fact, Israel has gone into exile. The southern kingdom, Judah, has gone into exile, and he is prophesying, saying, guess what? That which is in exile, that which is dead, that which is buried, and that which is gone will come back to life. There has never, catch this, catch this, there has never been in the history of mankind a nation that has been exiled from its land for 2,000 years and brought back together as a people. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. 1 Thessalonians, and, and it is vital, it is crucial for us to be the beacon of hope in the world today. There are three virtues. Those virtues are faith, hope, and love. It is for us to bring those virtues to the, to the world. And this morning, we're going to focus on being a beacon of hope. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says this, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. What, what Paul's saying, he's using the analogy of night and day. How many know that in the world it's night? But we don't belong to the night. Since we belong to the day, we need to walk, what? Sober-minded. Be sober-minded. And put on, what? The breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope of salvation. When we're putting on the breastplate, faith and love, what are we doing? From our heart. We're acting and believing loyalty and faith. We're not just confessing words and saying, yeah, I believe this. I believe this. No, we're from our heart. We're acting and living. We have that, that armor of God that's covering our heart. And from that place, we're living and acting and believing loyalty, reflecting the character and nature of God. That's his love. And then it says we put on the hope of, the, of salvation, our mind, our soul, 
anchors us with a steadfastness that is not dependent on our individual or collective circumstances. If there is a message we need to hear today, it's that. The three core values of what it means to be a believer. We live in believing loyalty to God. We live a life of selfless sacrifice and service. And we do that by having a steadfast anchor in our future. We're going to start with a verse and end with this verse. It says this in Peter. Peter is, 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 uh, is writing to, he's writing to uh, the believers in the diaspora and around the world. And he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, according to the character and nature of his love, according to the very being he has to desire to reconcile us back to him and who he is, the love that he pours out. He has caused us to be born again, made new, enter into a new kingdom to what a living hope. If there's one thing the world needs, it is a living hope. Hope. Do you have a living hope? How do we get that? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. These bones shall live. Through the resurrection, through the bringing back of that which is dead, that's also your heart and mine. That which is dead has been born again, made new. And and that's how we develop the hope. What is that hope? That hope is an inheritance. An inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Listen. If you're listening and you're reading these words right now, this is not just a, a, you know, like, holy scripture that's off there and out there that's meant to kind of, like, encourage us a little bit. Peter is trying to tell something to the people he loves and cares about. He's trying to say, you have an inheritance. But the inheritance you have is not the treasure of this world. He's echoing what, what, what Matthew records for us. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where must, must and wrath. Where must and wrath can destroy. Where rust and moth can destroy. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven that cannot be destroyed. And this is what Peter's saying. You have an inheritance. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And it's kept in heaven for you. How? You. Who are you? You, by God's power, are being guarded through faith. Your believing loyalty to God. God works through that to guard you, to protect you, to keep you, and bring you to an inheritance that, uh, that will... Um, that will be revealed to us in the final time of salvation through faith for a salvation revealed in the last time. Do you see what Peter just did? He put love, faith, and hope all together in. Love, faith together in that one place. But since they're a virtue, guess what? How many know virtues don't happen automatically? People are confused. What do you mean that will happen automatically? Okay, I'll make it very simple. How many of us, when our children come out of the womb, just come out and say, oh, please and thank you. And why, that was nice. I appreciate that, mother. Oh, and what else can I do to help? Or how many of us have to teach our children, no, you shouldn't be selfish. No, you have to say please and thank you. 
What is it that we come out of the womb doing? We know how to be selfish. We know how to get angry. Oh, is, or is that just my kids? Was that just my kids? You teach your children virtues. What does that mean? If I'm going to live love, if I'm going to live faith, if I'm going to demonstrate hope in this world, I have to cultivate that as a virtue in my life. It doesn't just happen. I have to say, I want to be a person of hope. And unless we do that, the world will not see the hope that Jesus Christ is offering. Do you follow? Is everybody with me? Or is everybody just like scared right now? So, um, I'm going to say this up front. There is a, there is a fantastic uh, Bible study on the meaning of hope. And I've borrowed a lot of this material that I had this morning. It just was one of those places. I had an English teacher who said years ago, well, you know, what you're looking for is one good source. When you find one good source, hang on to it. You know, you have a whole long list of bibliography you use to study, but that one good one's an important one. So, anybody heard of Tim Mackey with Bible Project? All right, he's got this podcast called My Strange Bible. Check it out. The Meaning of Hope, fantastic. I'm going to be using a lot of what I, I have this morning. I'm uh, is, is incorporated into, into the study I have. I highly recommend go listening to it. All right. I like to give credit where, where credit's due right up front. So what we're going to talk about is building biblical hope. How do we build biblical hope? Well, the first thing to do is understand the difference between biblical hope and worldly hope. I'm going to use this quote here. This quote is from Dr. Cornell West. He was a, he was a um, Harvard professor. He's a brilliant man, intellectual. Actually, most of what he says I disagree with. But um, uh, he was a professor of religion. Uh, but this quote, the way he put this, this is just, it, it, it was clear he's pulling biblical principles out as he put this out. And so I, I want us to see how we can see this is worldly hope, this is biblical hope, and here's the difference. He says, hope and optimism are different. So optimism is worldly hope. Hope is biblical hope in in the analogy I'm using here. Optimism tends to be based on the notion that there's enough evidence out there to believe things are going to be better. More rational, much more rational, deeply secular, whereas hope looks at the evidence and says, it doesn't look good at all. It doesn't look good at all. How many of us have been there? See, Worldly hope, optimism says, I can find enough evidence to somehow get a positive mindset. Somehow we can turn this into something good. This is, world, this is worldly hope. And it's, a, it's a, a maybe, a possibility. Biblical hope looks at the world and goes, oh, this is not good. <sighs> Going to go beyond the evidence to create new possibilities based on visions that become contagious to allow people to engage in heroic actions always against the odds, no guarantee whatsoever. That's hope. He says, I'm a prisoner of hope, though. I'm going to die a prisoner of hope. So, three points about biblical hope. It goes beyond the circumstances. If you're going to stand in biblical hope, if you're going to be a beacon of biblical hope, you have to look beyond your circumstances. You can't be hoping in your circumstances. Number two, it's based on contagious visions of the future. What did Peter just say? You have an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading. What more of a contagious vision of the future do you want? Can you have a bigger contagious vision of the future? 
The question is whether you believe it. And number three, called to act in heroic ways despite the odds with no guarantees in the immediate. That is the cross. You and I are called to act in heroic ways. We are called to be the ones to go out and find a place of suffering and alleviate it. Regardless of the cost to self, knowing that my reward doesn't come in the immediate circumstances. It comes in a vision that is contagious in the future. Now, will there be rewards in this life? Absolutely. Jesus says, he who gives up uh, mother, father, sister, brother, houses, and and things in this earth will receive uh, a multitude back in this life with persecution. You see, the key is our willingness to go through suffering. Our willingness to embrace the cross. If you want to bring hope, you have to bring hope the way Jesus did, and that's through the cross. All right, so to be a beacon of hope, how do we do that? To give the world biblical hope, we're not giving the world optimism. We're not bringing toxic positivity. All of us know a toxic positive person, don't we? If you don't know that person, you might, never mind. You, know, you, you have that person who, like, everything, I mean, you're in the middle of it. And they're all oh, just, it, everything is just going to work out. What happens when it doesn't? What do you have to give to the person when it doesn't work out? To give the world a steadfast anchor based on a future vision that calls us to act heroically beyond our circumstances. That's what we're called to give. So, it's not important. It's not to deny our circumstances. It's to go beyond our circumstances. You can't go beyond by denying. All right, so how do we cultivate this? So we're going to go on a journey this morning. We're going to go on a journey this morning, and uh, we're going to take a, we're going to we're going to take this this uh, this ten thousand foot view speed journey through history, and we're going to go back uh, and and see that God is number one a redeeming God. And the Bible opens up with some assumptions. This is how the Bible opens up. It opens up assuming this world is dark, this world is dangerous, this world is chaotic. There is evil in this world. There is corruption in this world. And it's, in, it's into this that God speaks life. That's how the Bible opens up. The first 11 chapters are all about explaining wh- why the, the, the evil, corruption, divorced condition of mankind from God even exists to begin with. And it's into that he speaks and he calls somebody out of that. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a promise. And he's, he makes that covenant one-sided. It's a promise he's going to keep. And he takes from that one man and makes an entire nation. He puts them, they're in the land of Egypt. And the land of Egypt at this point represents all of the chaos of this world. And he delivers them out of it powerfully. Now, what's interesting about this is this is not just a story. It's an actual history of a nation. It's God working in the the reality of our world in the same way he's working in the reality of our world today. 
And so he calls them out. He established them as a nation. He makes a covenant promise with them. And he tells them, if you follow me, if you faithfully obey my voice, if you carefully keep what I command you, you will be a nation set high on, above all the nations on the earth. He says, however, if you don't obey my voice, if you're not careful to keep what I command you today, then there will be curses that will come upon you and you will be overtaken. He's made a promise. He's looking for someone to be a beacon of light on the earth for him. And he has taken this nation and says, you will be that nation. But you, but it, to be called to that is not the same thing as being that church. To be called to be a beacon of hope is not the same thing as being a beacon of hope. Church. You see, something happened. Put the, the, the map up there. Israel went on this continual uh, uh, journey of rebellion and rebellion and rebellion, and they would repent and come back and rebel more and repent and come back and rebel more until finally the kingdom, you see the yellow part in the middle and the, and the pink part down the bottom? That's the kingdom of Israel split in half, torn in two because of the obedience, the disobedience of the nation. And then the kings, uh, uh, the series of kings begin to, to reign and rule in, in both nations, and especially in the northern kingdom. One king after the other leads the people after other gods, leads the people into more corruption, leads the people into more disobedience. And God brings prophet after prophet to stand up and say, listen, listen, God's made a promise. He's made a covenant. He wants us to be a light, but if we are not a light, he's going to turn the light out. And finally, Isaiah stands up, and, I, and Isaiah says this. He says, uh, he says, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently, and they rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. Mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. What he's saying is this. We studied this in the, in the, in the book of uh, Jonah. The prophets go to Nineveh. The prophets say, repent. The nation repents and God relents. Now the prophets are coming to Israel saying, repent, or that nation that did repent will pour over you. You have a choice. You either have the rivers of Shiloh, the rivers of my presence, the rivers of my spirit exalting you as a nation, or you will have the rivers of the wrath of Assyria who will take you over. And so in Isaiah 9-1, there's this poem and it says this, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he who brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he, was made glor- he, made, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of nations. So here's Isaiah about 700 B.C. Uh, in the 700s, uh, uh, between 7 and 800 BC, he's prophesying. The kings of, uh, of Israel have abandoned Yahweh. He's warning Israel. He's calling them to obey. And finally, he says this, gloom and destruction has come over Zebulon and Naphtali. Now, why Zebulon and Naphtali? Because Le- Zebulon and Naphtali, the land of Galilee, are at the north. And Assyria came down. Can you go back to the one map one back for, for this? Assyria comes down from the north. The kingdom of Assyria, the, the next map. 
The Syria comes down, that's, that's like modern day uh, Iraq and Iran and Syria and Lebanon. That's the kingdom the, uh, uh, of empire of Assyria. And they come down into Israel from the north. They come into that north gate. And Isaiah is prophesying, this is exactly where they're going to come. This is exactly what's going to happen. And then we get another writer of, the, writer of the Bible that tells us in 2 Kings, in the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tilgath-Pilasar, king of Assyria, came and captured Ejon, Abelmeth. Abel Beth Maka, uh, Yanoah, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Israel. Isaiah prophesied it before it happens. He tells us, and God is faithful to keep his, his word. Writers come along later and tell us exactly how God kept his word. He wipes out the entire northern kingdom of Israel to this day. But he says this, but in the latter time, he has made a glorious way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of of the nations. In verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, a light has shone on them. So Isaiah is prophesying two things at the same time. He's prophesying Assyria is going to wipe you out and there's hope. There's a light that's going to shine. There's hope that's coming both at the same time. But the question becomes, if you're in Israel, if you are being overrun by another nation, if you are going through gloom and darkness and destruction, what's your question? When, Lord, when, when is that light coming? Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide you in a spoil. The poets write in this amazing Hebrew poetry, and, and so we're going to pull little nuggets out of this poetry. What is he saying? When is going to be at the time of harvest. Here's the problem. The time of harvest is a long time from now. How many know if you go out and take a seed and you put it in the garden, you're not going to eat off of that seed tomorrow? Anybody know that? In fact, plant a seed for a fruit tree. It won't even be this year or next year or the year after. It'll be several years. And then he goes on in verse 4. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. He's prophesying hope at the same time he's prophesying destruction. You're going to undergo gloom. You're going to undergo destruction. But there's going to be hope. I'm going to break the oppressor. And you want an example of it? Remember what Gideon did to the Midianites when the Midianites overran the nation. In verse 5, every boot of the tampering warrior, warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. All the implements that bring destruction, that bring oppression will be destroyed. And you can hear the voice of Israel crying out, when, Lord, when? Anybody ever cry out, when, Lord? Anybody face that medical test and go, when, Lord? Everybody lose their job? Everybody looking at war going on right now? Everybody looking at all the, the corruption in the world and go, when, Lord? And in verse 6, he says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. In his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What is he saying? He's saying there is one who will be born and the government will be on his shoulder. And he will be a wonderful counselor. That means a wise planner of great fit. It doesn't mean like the best therapist in the world. Though Jesus is the best therapist in the world. He's a wise planner of great feats. He will be mighty God, everlasting Father. He will be the embodiment of the Godhead of Israel, as Paul tells us in Colossians. He's the Prince of Peace. He takes conflict and turns it into unity. He takes disharmony and makes harmony, friendship. He knits community tight together in safety and security. The short version is he brings shalom, abundance, and wellness. This is, he's prophesying at the same time he's prophesying destruction. And he says this kingdom will be forever. He will be a descendant of David. He will set all things right. He will make them just and right. He will do this with passion and zeal. He's literally saying, I am going to reverse the rebellion of Israel. I'm going to reverse this. And it's not going to be based on circumstances. It's not going to be based on optimism. It's a word of hope. So if we turn over to Matthew chapter 4, the question we have is when, Lord? When? When? 700 years later, after the exile from Babylon, after the the destruction from the Greeks, after being overrun by the Romans, after history... uh, um, bringing uh, uh, difficult and hard times throughout. Matthew says this in verse 4 and verse, verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He's talking about Jesus. So John the Baptist just got arrested down in Judea, and he went to Galilee. Galilee was up in that north area, remember? Now catch this. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, which is the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Do you see what Matthew's saying? Jesus has fulfilled the promise to Isaiah. He has fulfilled it. It has happened. It has occurred. He, and so, so what is that light? Exactly what is the light? Well, what did Jesus say? From that time forward, he began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. kingdom of God's here. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus goes back to the very place of darkness. He goes back to the very place of destruction, the very place of separation. And in that place, he says, the kingdom of God has come. Now, there's some surprising features about hope here. Somebody notice this? It took 700 years. It took 700 years for that to happen. You see, God keeps his promises, but God is completely free and creative to do it as he chooses to do it and the way he does it. Now, why would I say that? 
Well, because a lot of us would go, well, but, you know, the government isn't resting on his shoulder yet, right? I mean, we don't see, like, worldwide peace and all of that happening, right? I mean, it's, it's like, there's a lot of things. I mean, isn't this supposed to be a world in, in, in which now, you know, Jesus is reigning and, and, all of, and all the peace and everything in this world and everything has come to be just and right? Isn't that what's supposed to be going on here? So here's my question. Did Jesus fulfill this prophecy in a straightforward manner? Kingdom of justice, righteousness, end of all war. You see, one of the problems that a lot of people in the time of Jesus had wasn't that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. It's that he claimed to be the Messiah and he didn't do it the way they expected him to do it. Guys, how many of us expect God to do things a certain way in our lives and if he doesn't, we no longer have hope? God is going to keep his promises. He has kept his promises, but Jesus had a very different target than what everybody else was expecting. What was the target Jesus had? His target wasn't Rome. His target wasn't Greece. His target wasn't Persia. His target wasn't Babylon. His target was the devil and his minions. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the reason, from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The Bible is trying to tell us something about the very nature of evil itself. What is the nature of evil? No, nature of evil. It's not, okay, it's not, you know, so some of you will actually get this reference. It's not laughing. You know, the devil made me do it. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> it's this. It's that there are mysterious forces at work in humanity that are lying to us about who we are, who God is, and who other people are. And it's causing random, senseless, tragic ways in which we are giving in to his lies, participating with him, and erupting tragic evil and destruction all over this world. That's what the Bible's trying to tell us. There is spiritual forces at work bringing destruction in this world, and we are his unwitting minions doing it. And that is what Jesus came to destroy. That is what we are to represent, that that no longer lives in us. And how do we do that? Love, faith, and hope. We live love. It is love that conquers evil. It's not getting rid of Rome, it's getting rid of the devil in you and in me. And when he is gone in you and in me, we live Jesus. Ephesians chapter 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. It is complete naivete to think the world's going to change by itself. Well, if the world's not going to change by itself, how's it going to change? And whose responsibility is it? That's why he's sending us. We're to be the beacon of hope. Second Corinthians 
Chapter 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What the Bible shows us, what the world shows us, is that this destructive cycle will continue to happen over and over and over and over if it's left on its own devices. We are called to be the beacon of hope, to break the cycle, to live love, to live faith, to be the hope, to have an anchor beyond what we see, knowing that there is a future that is coming. The forces of evil are destructive and random. And that was the target of Jesus. He says this, in, Paul says this in Colossians, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your, of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the debt of the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Let me stop right there. What is he saying? All of our participation in that, all of our communication with that, all in which we have been the, the unwitting uh, 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 powers on earth to bring all of that destruction back, Jesus took it all and nailed it to the cross until we understand the grace of God that has been poured on us to change us completely and thoroughly from being a minion of the devil to being the righteousness of Christ. We have not understood what Jesus did on your behalf and I and my behalf. And then he says this. How did he do that? He did that, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them. How did he triumph over them? He triumphed through the cross. It's the cross. By losing, he won. And so Jesus announces the kingdom of God. And how? He goes to the tax collectors. He goes to the outcasts. He goes to the prostitutes. He creates a community of the forgiven. And forgiveness defeats the work of the enemy through his grace, through the new life that he gives, through the salvation that he offers. He destroys the image of the devil and exchanges it for the image of the living God in our lives. How did he take the government on his shoulders? He took the Roman execution rack upon his shoulders. He took all of the forces of the government of Rome and said, put it on my shoulders. John chapter 12, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. If you take that the way we would hear it, it's like when you make him great and you make him awesome, then he will draw all men. He says, no, when all the forces of evil have done their worst, life will draw all men to me. Love will draw all men to me. And that is the hope that we face this world with. Nobody saw it coming. Jesus knew how he was going to do it. He knew he was going to win by losing, but nobody else did. They didn't see it coming. They didn't know what was going to happen. The cross becomes this enthronement place for him. It's strange, it's weird, it's unexpected, and it's powerful, and it brings light, and it brings life, and it overcomes darkness. He, ultimately, he's going to set all things right. Ultimately, he's going to return, because there's two places that we need to nail hope in hope number one is in the cross hope number two is in the resurrection we are a beacon of hope by embracing the cross we are a beacon of hope by embracing the resurrection what does all this mean for us well it means two things 
It means the cross and it means resurrection. So we're closing with this. Two things we need to embrace, the cross, the resurrection, and both are in Christ. Hebrews 12, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Many of us are not optimistic. We don't have a positive outlook on the world. Life is frightening, it's hard, it's difficult, and it's fearful, either for us, for our loved ones, or for the way we see the world that's going. We're in the middle of the shadowland, and we're asking, where are you, God? Don't miss the point of the shadowland. There was nothing thrilling about the cross when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus didn't want it to be that way. Father, if there's any other way. Jesus was asking on the cross, where are you, God? Jesus was experiencing the absence of God's presence. The cross was Jesus literally going through the valley of the shadow of death with us. God was being crucified. God was being God forsaken. It's that paradox that God is actually fulfilling his promise precisely in the moment of darkness. If we're going to overcome, if we're going to bring hope in the midst of this world, it's not because we're going to be positivity, optimism, cheery, cheery. It's because in the midst of it, we are going to bring the cross that says, I am going to embrace Jesus and call out to Jesus in my darkest moments, in my hardest moments, in those moments of saying, where are you, God? In those moments when I don't understand, in those moments when it doesn't make sense, I'm going to say, you are still going to keep your promises. You are still going to make uh, uh, all of this work out for your good. I have to embrace the cross if I'm going to bring hope, but I also have to embrace resurrection. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Blessed are you, Lord. In your mercy and your love, you've caused me to be born again. You've given me a hope that's alive. It's alive because Jesus is alive and you brought him back from the dead. And in that hope, I know that I have an inheritance. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept by you. It can't be touched by anyone. Your power is keeping it, is guarding it. I'm going to live in believing loyalty for you, looking for that day. And in that, I'm going to live beyond my circumstances. I'm going to live based on a contagious vision of the future. I'm going to act in ways that are heroic despite the ads with no guarantee in the immediate. And as Paul exhorts us, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. And we have a mission. We have a mission to bring the love, the power, and the truth of the gospel in this world. We do it by living love selfless acts towards others, by believing loyalty in our faith, and by having a steadfast anchor of hope that goes beyond what we see, no matter what we see, no matter what we're going through, no matter how much we're crying out, we're not giving up. That's the hope of being the beacon. That's, 
how we as the church are the beacon of hope. Amen.